Now, we've got three readings today, and I thought it would be different and, and fun if we could do the first of our readings as part of our call to worship. So I'll read, and this is a kind of very traditional thing in churches to have a responsive reading. So I'll read the first two verses, and then if you can all join in uh, out loud, if you're comfortable with that, we'll read the next few verses, and then I'll finish with the final one. And this passage is one of the early uh, defining statements about the essence of the Christian faith, the things that are of first importance. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and hopefully it'll come up on the screen now. So let me begin. Now, this is the Apostle Paul writing. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And then all together, please. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And Paul finishes that section with these words in verse 11. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is God's word. Now our next two readings are also following up on this theme of resurrection that we're doing at the moment in, in the church. And so it's great to welcome virtually uh, Joy and Emily who are going to read to us from Acts chapter 2 and from Romans 4. Acts 2, verse 29 to 39. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
Romans 4, 18-25 Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Thank you. As we come before God in prayer, uh, would you please join with me as we prepare to consider these texts together. Heavenly Father, in your Son Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, one thing that a crisis does is reveal your foundations. And a global crisis like the pandemic that we're currently living through shakes a lot of people's foundations. And if we're honest, maybe it's shaken ours. Because of the greater time and space that we now have because of lockdown and because of the presence of a virus in our society, many of us have become more reflective than we usually are. We find ourselves pondering some of the big questions in life. How am I doing in this thing called life? What am I really living for? And is it adequate? If the time came, would I be ready to die? And what am I really building my life on? Now I've got a hunch that more people are now open to asking these kinds of questions than at any time in recent history. We're at a unique moment and it coincides with a peculiar time in Western culture, in Western history, which can be summed up in this phrase, we're all doubters now. We're all doubters now. All of us. Now, I borrowed that line from James Smith, who's a professor at Calvin University in Michigan, United States. Smith has written a book called How Not to Be Secular. Can I hold that up? Can people see that? That's for the visual learners. How Not to Be Secular. And in it, he unpacks the thought of a Canadian philosopher whose who's face graces the cover, Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor is one of the most influential thinkers about religion and culture of our time. And Taylor asked this question. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in the year 1500 in our Western society, while 500 years later, many people find it virtually impossible to believe? So 500 years ago, the year 1500, it was virtually impossible not to believe in God. But 500 years later, many, many people find it virtually impossible to believe. Something has happened during those 500 years that has changed the landscape of belief beyond all recognition. 
The maps have been redrawn. But it doesn't mean that religious faith, religious belief, has now disappeared. In some respects, it is now growing all around the world. People are still turning to God in faith, but they are doing so in a very different environment, in an environment of doubt. So we're all doubters now. Now for Christians, this means that Christian believers are niggled by doubts that wouldn't have been there for someone 500 years ago. Smith in the book writes, we don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now, referring to doubting Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. And doubt has this kind of sticky quality. It's a bit like Velcro. If you leave it unchallenged, other doubts start to sort of stick onto it and cling to it until you can find yourself overwhelmed with the weight of them. And if that's you, can I invite you not to hide your doubts and be embarrassed and ashamed, but to bring them out into the open with trusted Christian friends, bring them into the Christian community and talk them through with other people who love and accept you. And you know, you will find out that many other people think about and struggle with the same things. But there's another side to the doubting coin and it's fascinating. It's that non-believers doubt too. Even convinced atheists have doubts about their position. They're haunted by the absence of God. They're haunted by the absence of all that God stands for, of a source of all beauty and life and joy, of a higher purpose and meaning, of a foundation for life that seems adequate, of a hope after death. They're haunted by the loss of these things. And there's nothing in this world that makes up for it. Julian Barnes is an English novelist, famously started his memoir with the words, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And if that's you, then I'm really glad you're listening in today and you're part of our church service because we love having people along who are curious, who are sceptical, who are asking questions and bringing you into this conversation. We're all doubters now. Christians are niggled by doubts. And non-believers are haunted by transcendence. You see, we don't live in a simple black and white world of convinced new atheists on the one hand, and on the other hand, blinkered religious fundamentalists. Reality is much more complicated and 3D than that. And so, what we need, and we all need it, is confidence. We need confidence. We need certainty. We need assurance. And the linchpin of Christian confidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the foundation stone for the whole building. The whole Christian faith stands or falls upon the resurrection of Jesus, the literal bodily resurrection. It really is that foundational. Here's the Apostle Paul writing in that um, chapter we were reading from earlier, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that means died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So being a Christian, if it's only for this life, if it's just wishful thinking, it's actually pitiful, Paul says. We must believe really believe and understand that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore everything has changed. So it is vital for us to revisit this foundation, to review it, 
to see that our faith is not built on sand but built on solid rock and to see and understand more fully what the resurrection means. And for other people, for those of you who are exploring the Christian faith, I want you to see that Christianity did not emerge from the mists of history like a myth or a legend, but it is built on verifiable historical facts. We have a reasonable and reliable faith. I want you to, to start to see that. We all need confidence. Now this month we're doing a series on the resurrection. It's called Resurrection Life and each week we're looking at a different aspect of what the doctrine of the resurrection means. And so today we're thinking about resurrection confidence. I want to show today that we can have confidence in three things. One, Jesus was raised from the dead. Two, Jesus was who he said he was. And three, Jesus did what he said he'd do. Jesus was raised from the dead. He, he was who he said he was. And he did what he said he'd do. And these three points pretty much tally with the three texts that we've read so far from 1 Corinthians, Acts and Romans. So firstly, Jesus really was raised from the dead. And I think my super talented co colleague will have put a slide up at this moment. So there you see it. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you remember a major life event uh, in your life from about 20 years ago? And how much can you remember about it? Now, if you're under the age of 20, you're struggling with this. So, so in your case, try something a bit more recent. Now, I can remember something that happened nearly 20 years ago. And I can remember it as though it was last week. Because it was a major life event, I became a father for the first time. It was the year 2000. To be honest, there are hundreds and thousands of things that happened that year about which I have virtually no memory. But if you ask me about the time where I became a dad in September 2000, I can remember it very, very vividly in high definition. I remember uh, the build up to that week. I remember my wife's blood pressure was spiking. She was getting preeclampsia. We were very concerned about what would happen. We were ex expectant new parents. We didn't know how it all worked. I remember we were admitted to hospital on the Wednesday morning for her to be induced. And then I learned that induction isn't as simple and straightforward as I thought it was. I remember the trips back and forth from home to Kingston Hospital in the car. I remember the endless waiting around in the hospital ward, punctuated by painful contractions from time to time. I remember her gripping my hand so hard that I nearly squealed. I remember the hope. I remember the worry. I remember the questions. I remember the anaesthetist. Then at 10.30pm on Friday night, after 53 hours of trying, all of a sudden, they rushed us into an emergency caesarean section. So I remember the inside of the operating theatre. But even before that, I remember being dressing on my own outside in, in theatre greens for the first time and, and waiting to be called in and then going in and seeing there were loads of staff in there. All these people running around doing different things, but all using the same calming voices. And in the background, they were playing opera music. I remember my dear wife's face and holding her hand. I remember the exhaustion. And I remember the tension. And finally, I remember the little bleating sound of a tiny baby's cry three weeks early. I remember it. Although it was 20 years ago, I will never forget those times because it changed me forever. 
You see, we remember the big events very, very clearly. You forget the small stuff, but the life-changing events, they stay clear and they are reinforced by multiple retellings over the years, including retelling them with other people who were involved at the time and hearing their uh, recollection of it as well. Now, scholars agree that 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. It was written by St. Paul sometime in the 50s, not the 1950s, the 50s, and it was probably written between AD 53 and 57, in that kind of four-year window. In other words, it was written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that was a major life event that none of those eyewitnesses would ever forget. Now just look at how St Paul sets out the evidence here. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, he points out that this is a reminder he says, I've lost my bit of paper that had this on somehow. Excuse me one moment. This is why we're live, so we can recapture all the uh, mistakes. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Here we are. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. This is the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. So these are people who've committed their lives to this message and become followers of Jesus. Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So it's very, very important. It's a gospel refresher. It's a reminder that he's going to give them. And in verse 3 to 5, he highlights the things that are of first importance, the primary things. He says four things. One, Christ died. Two, he was buried. Three, he was raised on the third day. And four, he appeared. He was seen. And then verses five to seven may seem very strange to us. But notice what he's doing in verses five through to seven. He says he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. These are the disciples, Jesus' closest followers. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. So they're still alive, although some have fallen asleep. That's a, rep, a way of describing death. And then verse 7, he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. It's a list of witnesses. And the key point here is that most of the witnesses were still alive when the letter was written. In other words, you could ask them for the truth of this story. Now, these were not the only witnesses. Uh, Jesus actually, very first of all, appeared to some women who were carefully named in the Gospel of Mark. But in the ancient world, uh, which was uh, not, not the most um, politically correct of times, the testimony of women was not admitted in court. So they're not mentioned in this official list in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice these were people who knew Jesus well and they would easily recognise him. Peter, the 12 disciples, had spent three years living with Jesus cheek by jowl. Then there were appearances over a range of time. This wasn't a one-off occurrence. This is not talking about a group hallucination. Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples. In Acts chapter 1 it says... After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. 
Now listen to this next verse. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. They ate and drank and spoke together. These were not mysterious sightings like the so-called abominable snowman or Loch Ness Monster. You know, you get those grainy, grainy photographs. These were sustained personal interactions. They were up close and personal. There actually wasn't any social distancing. Thomas missed the first meeting where Jesus came to his disciples and he said, uh, he just couldn't believe that what they were saying. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where he'd been stabbed with a spear, I will not believe. Jesus came to them later in a locked room and said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You see, Jesus, even in his resurrected body, still had some of the scars of his crucifixion. We are talking about eyewitnesses who didn't expect Jesus to rise, who really believed that he had, who were profoundly changed by it, and who were prepared to die for it. Now, make no mistake, this was the single biggest event of their lives, and they did not forget it. 20 years later, they were able to remember. One of the main objections to Christian belief is that resurrection is impossible. It couldn't happen. And those early Christians would have said to you, you know, we weren't expecting it either, but we couldn't deny the evidence. Jesus really rose from the dead. We thought about the evidence of the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. We thought about some of the alternative explanations that have been offered over the years. And now we're faced with a second big piece of evidence, eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Now, many sceptics who have examined this evidence with an open mind have concluded that Jesus, after all, did rise from the dead. Legal experts like Frank Morrison, Gilbert West, Edward Clark and J.N.D. Anderson. Scholars like James Orr, Michael Ramsey, Arnold Lunn, Wolfhart Pannenberg. Ramsey wrote these words, So utterly new and foreign to the expectations of men was this doctrine that it seems hard to doubt that only historical events could have created it. Jesus really rose from the dead. We can have confidence in the fact. We can have confidence that he rose from the dead. But what does it mean? What's the, what's the point of the resurrection? Now, the New Testament makes clear that the resurrection was not just an amazing miracle. It has far-reaching implications. It means that Jesus, secondly, was who he said he was. And this is the second point. Hopefully it's coming up. Jesus was who he said he was. Now, for this point, we're going to turn over to Acts chapter 2. If you've got your Bible there, please do turn to that. I've finally found my printouts here. Um, Acts chapter 2, we have here the first Christian sermon. And in itself, you know, this is amazing because the preacher is no other person than Peter. Peter, just a few weeks before, Peter was so scared to be associated with Jesus that he had denied him vehemently. But now we find him standing in the public square in Jerusalem, of all places, a place of highest danger, boldly testifying that Jesus was the Messiah. And this sermon had an electrifying effect. 
People were deeply moved and challenged and convicted by it. It says they were pierced to the heart. Over 3,000 people joined the church that day and said they were going to follow Jesus Christ. But notice in this first Christian sermon where Peter lands the plane. He lands the plane on the resurrection. He makes three key points about it. Uh, You killed him. God raised him. And we saw him. Uh, You killed him. Have a look at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This was just a matter of a few weeks after Jesus had been crucified. On the time we remember as Good Friday. Everyone knew about it. It was the biggest story around. The Jesus movement had swept through the country for three years. He was nationally famous. I suppose we would say he was a celebrity. And for him to be caught and tried and found guilty in the kangaroo court as he was, and then for Pilate in a politically expedient move to, to hand him over, for him to be crucified, and for the events that happened around that to have happened, everyone knew that Jesus uh, had died. And what Peter says is, you killed him. You people were responsible for that. Secondly, God raised him. Have a look at verse 32 and 33. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Now we understand from the scriptures that God is a unity of three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. A triunity or trinity so the three persons in the one godhead so when the scriptures speak of god in a passage like that they're talking about god the father when they speak about the lord jesus they mean the son and the holy spirit is the holy spirit so all three of them are referenced in that but notice the language god the father raised him from the dead jesus did not raise himself god the father looked upon what he'd done at the cross And God the Father raised him from the dead. God raised him. Thirdly, we saw him. Verse 32, he says, we are all witnesses of it. Now, we've we've gone into the witness point before. I won't labour it again. Based on those three points, though, you killed him. God raised him. We saw him. Peter now makes this theological conclusion. Have a look at verse 36. Therefore drawing it all together let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah God has made him Lord and Messiah now Jesus had made many astonishing claims during his life they were claims that no ordinary human could get away with just think about some of these briefly with me firstly Jesus taught with authority Uh, teachers religious teachers of that time the Jewish experts would always say something like thus says the Lord or the scriptures say this but Jesus said and he was the only person to do this truly I say to you in other words his authority to speak about God was not derived but original he taught with authority secondly he demonstrated his authority over the physical world There are multiple accounts of Jesus healing people dramatically, sometimes with a word from a distance. Of his power over the physical world of nature, calming a hurricane, multiplying food, 
raising people from the dead, changing water into wine, things that only the creator could do. Authority over the created world. Then there was authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus demonstrated that he could have power over evil spirits, could exorcise demons without needing to call on God. He did it in his own power. And then there was something that was quite shocking to the people of the time, asserting the authority to forgive sins. Jesus said famously to the paralysed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Every Jew knew that this was God's sole prerogative and some of them thought he was blaspheming when he said it. And then Jesus more overtly assumed divine rights or titles for himself. He speaks of himself as having existed eternally. He says in one place, before Abraham was, I am. Now Abraham had lived some 2,000 years earlier. Jesus Christ says boldly, before Abraham was, I am. And finally, he accepted worship from his disciples. They worshipped him. Huge claims. But just do a thought experiment with me for a moment. If Jesus had died on the cross, been buried, and then his body had decayed and rotted away in the normal fashion, and his bones were still somewhere in Palestine in a bone box, what would we have made of all these claims? His claims would have died with him. You see, if Jesus really is the eternal Son of God, made flesh, come to earth for us and for our salvation, then he had to rise from the dead. He had to demonstrate that it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. He has to be bigger than death. After all, he predicted that death would not keep a hold on him. He repeatedly told his disciples that on the third day he would rise. Here's one of those quotes. The son of man, he said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now this is the great test, isn't it? Was Jesus who he said he was? Were his extraordinary and astonishing claims validated by his resurrection? So now they knew. This is one reason why these guys were so transformed. Now they know. In verse 36, Peter declares to everyone who will listen, God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. Now, Messiah is God's special chosen king. It's also translated Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his surname. It's a title. It means King Jesus. God's special chosen king, the appointed ruler of the world who would bring in God's kingdom of justice and love, peace. But the second title there is even more striking, Lord. Now, this is not just an honorific courtesy, but it's the name which is above every name. To a Jew, there was only one who could be called Lord. That was the incomparable God of Israel. He did not share his glory he was God and there was no other. And the apostles don't hesitate from this point on to give Jesus the title Lord in this highest sense, the name above all other names. They consistently take passages from the Old Testament that are clearly about God and they apply them to Jesus. So Jesus, we've learned, really was raised from the dead and his resurrection gives us confidence that he is who he said he was.
He's exactly who he said he was. The Messiah, the Lord, the Saviour, the eternal Son of God, worthy of all our worship and devotion and having a total claim upon our love and our allegiance. Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus was who he said he was. And thirdly, and finally, Jesus did what he said he would do. He did what he said he'd do. Now, during lockdown, uh, I'm sure like me, you've, most of you have been staying in your home for almost the whole day and perhaps occasionally going out for a walk to get your exercise. The key government message has been stay at home and obviously wash your hands and stay two metres away from people and so on. We've all got used to the sight of delivery vans arriving at all times of day and night to bring goods to people. Amazon vans and Tesco vans and every other kind of vans. And if a parcel is particularly invaluable and important, what are you supposed to do to demonstrate that you received it? Sign for it. It's not enough for the parcel simply to be sent. If a company or a person is sending something valuable to you, they need to know that it has been received, that it's all gone through, that it's been completed. And the resurrection is God's signature on our salvation. It's God's sign on the deal. It's God saying, this is completed. Now, we know that Jesus' crucifixion made a payment. He, he paid for sins. He himself taught this was the purpose of his death, he was taking the sins of many. I'll read uh, Mark 10 verse 45, one of the best statements of this. He says of himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So a ransom payment is something given in order to buy somebody back and free them. And in this case, it's the language of liberating someone from slavery. Jesus said he was giving his life as a ransom, a payment to set people free from slavery and to liberate them. So that's what his death was for, his death. But just go back to our thought experiment again. If Jesus had died on the cross for our sins and been buried and then just decayed like every other person who's ever died, how would we know that he had been successful? How would we know that our sins had been paid for? How would we know that God had accepted his self-sacrifice on our behalf? The answer is, we wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know that. In fact, we would, Paul says, be still in our sins. We would still be facing the judgment and the wrath of a holy God looking upon us with all the sins we've ever committed in our lives. We need the resurrection to know that God has received the payment for sins and he signed off on it. You see, if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. And a short but very eloquent summary of this is found in Romans chapter 4. We don't have time to, to unpack this wonderful chapter in its, in its depth, but I'm just going to read uh, one verse again from Romans chapter 4 because it summarises it in such an amazing way. It says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now this comes at the end of a chapter explaining how Father Abraham, those hundreds of years ago, was justified by faith. Justified means that you've declared something is right, declare it to be in the right. 
So if you took an examination, as uh, many students are not going to do this summer, but if you took an examination, you might be challenged to justify your answer. And that means show it to be right. Here, Paul speaks about being justified by God. That means that as far as God is concerned, you would be entirely in the right. All clear. No problems, no guilty track record. To put it in a, in a, in a visual way, to be justified is that between you and God, your relationship is like a clear blue sky without a single cloud in sight. And how does this happen? Through the resurrection. Here's our verse again. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins in full. But God raised Jesus from the dead, showing that he has signed the deal. So as far as God is concerned, those people who are justified by believing in Jesus by their faith are completely in the right. All clear. It's not that we're 50% saved by the cross and then 50% saved by the resurrection. They're completely integrated. You can't have one of them without the other. The resurrection shows that the cross has worked. The cross has saved us. It's done what Jesus said it would do. And the resurrection is now the consequence of the salvation that Jesus has provided through his death. His blood saves because he is risen. God has signed for it. So we can have confidence if we believe in Jesus fully and rest our trust in him on his work for us at the cross. We can be confident that we are forgiven, that we're accepted and welcomed in the beloved by God the Father. Let me ask you, uh, Christians watching and listening in here today, are you now living in this resurrection confidence? Martin Luther was uh, a monk. He lived in that time period of 500 years ago where people believed in God, but most of them had no confidence that they could be saved or they were working very, very hard with little assurance of what might happen to them. And after many, many years of struggling with this, Luther wrestled with the letter to the Romans and he read in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 about the, the righteousness of God being revealed. The righteous shall live by faith. And he wrote these words, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way except that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. Now my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I did not love a just angry God but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and I had a great yearning to know what he'd meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and a statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, 
Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. I hope you've grasped some of the weight of what the resurrection means today for our confidence. We live in troubled times. We live in anxious times. We're uncertain about so many things. And yet God has given us the resurrection of Jesus to give us certainty, to make us confident, uh, so that we don't live in, in doubt, shackled and bound and undermined by it all the time. Because we know from this testimony that the, of, the, of eyewitnesses that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he was who he said he was, and that he did all that he came to do. I hope that's encouraging to you today. Would you uh, join with me in a brief prayer? Lord, we thank you for the resurrection. We need its power to be released and unleashed in our lives. And Lord, I pray for those here who are struggling with doubts, whether they're believers or non-believers, and I pray that you would help them to work through them and to draw near to you and to find in you the gateway to heaven. Amen.